Let's focus more on the process and less on the product. Let's definitely bring things back to the learning. Let's bring it back to the process. The fact that there is no like, there's no like end of the learning thing. So it's not like we're trying to get to some end point where like, oh, learning's over, cool, we're done. Um, but that it's a constant process and that we as adults um, have to model that for kids too. Hi, and how's it going, everyone? Tom here from Dad Strong with the Dad Strong Podcast. If it's your first time joining us, welcome. Thank you for being here. And if you've been with us for a while, thank you so much for your support. Really appreciate it. And uh, whoever's listening, I really am glad that you've joined me on this journey to become better men and better fathers and better husbands. I know how important this is, and I know that you agree and you see it as well, that we can focus on a lot of things in life and a lot of things in the world and try and... uh, you know, right the eels of society, but it really comes down to parenting. You know, we are all a product of uh, the way our parents raised us and then the choices we make, you know, but a lot of those choices obviously depend on how our parents raised us. I know we can make a big difference if we first and foremost actually become those dads and men that we are capable of being. And then I think it also makes a difference if we hold accountable other men and um, encourage other men to step up and that's exactly what dad strong is about it's my own journey from being someone who really wasn't taking ownership of my own life who lost control and used to be uh, a slave to his anger and a slave to his emotions and i just see that the work and the progress that you can make as a man and as a father as a husband if you put in the effort and you're patient you be consistent it's just incredible what kind of life you can make for yourself and then obviously make for your family but it does start within us so it's really important guys that we continue on this path and that we are those examples and those role models not only to our kids but to everyone in society i think if we look at the stats of fatherless homes i think it's quite obvious that when a father is not present or if a father is present but not showing up that that leads to the things we see in society and i think a major change can happen if we really band together like we are now and um we listen to shows like it's like the one today um with jessica Leahy, or you know we connect with men that we've had on the show i mean i can't believe the list of of guests that we've had so far and it's you know people like Bert Soren, Brandon Lilly, we've had Jason Gardner, Navy SEAL, we've had Rob Machado last week and this week I'm interviewing Taylor Knox, professional ex-professional surfer as well and we've got um, David Rutherford um, from Frog Logic, also Navy SEAL, it's just incredible and for me to be able to have these conversations I know it's edifying and know it um, helps me to develop as a man and as a father and I know it does the same thing for you if we just reflect and use these things as an opportunity but uh, let's talk about my guest today because she is New York Times bestseller author Jessica Leahy. She's a teacher, she's a writer, she's a mom, and she writes about education for The Atlantic, for The Washington Post, and The New York Times. She's the author of the book that we talk about today, which is called The Gift of Failure, which is, as I said, a New York Times bestseller. And she's even written the educational curriculum for The Stinky and Dirty Show on Amazon. Um, and her next book is coming out uh, next year in 2021, April, which is called The Addiction Inoculation, which is Raising Healthy Kids in a Culture of Dependence. And um, that's exactly what we talk about today. You know, we talk about how and why we as teachers and parents need to learn to let go of our kids and let them be independent. Uh, we also discuss how valuing the learning process and not so much the product or grades is vital to building confidence and resilience in our kids. Uh, Jessica also tells us her own story of learning to allow our students and children to fail and the benefits of this. And we discuss what we 
should be placing focus on as parents you know often we place a lot of focus on the maths and the language and the science and we don't realize that there's so many things for our kids to do out there and us not being able to let go also um, and allowing our kids to fail also bleeds into this where we don't just let our kids discover things for our life and we discuss the importance um, as well of parents being involved in the kids education and bringing uh, into the role the ability to let go allow our kids to fail and learn from failures because as jessica says in her book failure is a gift so enjoy this guys and uh let us know what you think jessica welcome to dad strong podcast um happy to have you here and uh stoked look here what i've got got your book oh nice thank you Obviously. for having that thank <laughs> you for reading i really appreciate it anyways uh you've been doing a bit of writing as i see uh over the last while i think you write for the atlantic the washington post and is it also the new york times as well so I had, I, I've been so fortunate to have some great editors. I work, wrote for The Atlantic for quite a long time, a couple of years, and then was lucky enough to have a, um, a, a uh, column at the New York Times called The Parent-Teacher Conference for wow. three years. Cool. And that was so fun because it was sort of like bridging discussions between parents and teachers, talking about things that maybe parents weren't you know, a little, we're a little nervous to talk to teachers about, and I've been a teacher for over 20 years. So it was so much fun for me. Mm. Yeah, I'm a teacher myself. I've been a teacher for 15 years. So it was really when I, when I saw your um, name mentioned, actually was in a Ryan Holiday Daily Dad, I think. And then I, and then I read about you and I was like, this sounds exactly like what we talking about Dad Strong. And also what I talk quite often about as a teacher, I don't always get it right myself because of the expectations that are around children succeeding as a teacher, first of all. And I'm sure it's even worse in America where you as a teacher are valued or rated on the success of your students like parents think that they are perceived by the success of their children. Yeah, and there's some added layers. I've, you know, I've taught in both public and private schools, and in private schools, you know, parents sort of often feel that once you've paid some tuition to the school, that um, you know, the teachers have to have to help you know the kid get into the school of their choice, or the whole thing's been a big failure, that kind of thing. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of competing um, interests in in on the teacher's shoulders, and for the past. So the last six years, five years of my teaching career were teaching um, kids in an inpatient drug and alcohol rehab. So I was teaching kids who had to be in rehab and uh, really and had to go to school in rehab. So it was a real wow. challenge. It was really fun. I mean, there was sort of no parents in the picture because, you know, these are kids who are away from home. But at the same time, uh, there are also kids who have often been overlooked. Um, my next book is on preventing substance abuse in kids. And so, I, you know, a lot of the risk factors for substance abuse are things like academic failure and aggression towards other kids and stuff like that. And so there were so many competing things that competed with their ability to, you know, pay attention or get the job, you know, the assignment done and that kind of thing. So it was really, a, a, I love those students so, so much. But yeah, teaching is all about competing interests, parents kids their needs all that stuff that's why it keeps fun. that's why it's always different and fun every day yeah it's very fun um now I've, I'm, I'm working at a private school now in fact i used to work at a government school in south africa which was a lot different mm -hmm. because you know there's a lot more kind of faith in the teachers there and i guess people aren't really paying school fees sometimes or if they are they're paying mm -hmm. school fees. now being at an international school is really e interesting because it's got a lot of different parents from different cultures and different backgrounds and that's why it's almost more challenging 
I wouldn't say more, but it's difficult when you've got parents from Japan, Korea, America, England, um, South Africa, mm-hmm. and then you've got German parents, and then you're like as we're in Germany. And everyone seems to have a different opinion on what should be done. So in the classes, right. how do you even how do you even like make sure that you're differentiating in a way that even differentiates for the different cultures and different styles? <laughs> yeah, that and, and and well, and what was really interesting about teaching in the rehab is that a lot of the students, since academic failure is one of the risk factors for substance abuse, I often had kids, I mean, they may have been the same age. I mean, maybe we usually had kids between like 13 and 18, um, and, but they could be all over the place. One, a kid could be 17, but reading at a fifth grade level, I could have a 13 year old who's really at like a, a college level. So my mantra, both for parenting and teaching, has always been that you have to parent or teach the kids in front of you, the kids that are right there, as opposed to the kids you kind of wish you had. And, you know, I I often will make that bargain with parents where I say, look, if your kid ends up in my classroom, I promise to teach your kid, not like my you know, oh, I wish that kid was a stronger in math, or I wish that kid could understand what I'm talking about now, and I'll just keep talking in the hopes that, you know, maybe they'll understand me eventually. But yeah, that's really the goal is to figure out who the kids are in front of you and teach those kids. And and that's this, that's one of the hardest parts, I think, is to figure out where everyone is and how to be able to reach everyone at the same time. But how did you, how did you personally get through to parents in this way? Because I think it's quite a challenge for, first of all, for teachers to do it, but for parents in, in the whole, that I will be, I'm going to hopefully share this podcast with parents of our school and hopefully my colleagues mm-hmm. as well, because I think it's a very important thing that you've got here and getting everyone on the same page as regards to failure. And, and, the, right. and the reason that I've got you here is from the book um, or your book, The Gift of Failure and like how the best parents learn to let go so their children can succeed when you know, there's a lot of parents that can't, there are some parents that do, but then communicating, how did you communicate that to parents? And what would you say to parents listening now? <laughs> I think a lot, uh, one of the things that, that is really important to remember is that our common interest is in your, a kid's learning. And um, parents often will look at that learning in terms of the end product, whatever that grade is, you know, why is it a B plus instead of an A minus, that kind of thing. Whereas my goal as a teacher is often, you know, regardless of what that grade was, here's what I'm concerned about where, you know, in terms of where your kid is now, or on the flip side, okay, yeah, the, his writing grade may be still kind of low, but let's look at how far he's come from, let's look at this writing sample from one year ago and how far he's come in that period of time. So we're trying to bring that discussion back over and over and over again to the fact that what we're trying to get at is, is this kid learning? Is this kid achieving mastery regardless of his ability to take a test or you know do well on a writing assessment, that kind of thing? Because You know, I had to write Gift of Failure for where we are now, which is most places um, with grades. And yet, you know, from a teaching perspective, I'm very aware of the fact that often grades, um, especially, you know, when we're talking about summative big tests at the end of a unit are not often a really great measure of learning, sometimes they're a great measure of game playing or a a great measure of, you know, a kid's ability to... um, summarize and regurgitate. Um, So you kind of got to deal with what we've got. And the way I deal with that is by saying, look, let's focus more on the process and less on the product. Let's definitely bring things back to the learning. Let's bring it back to the process. The fact that there is no like, there's no like end 
of the learning thing. So it's not like we're trying to get to some endpoint. We're like, oh, learning's over. Cool, we're done. <laughs> um, but that it's a constant process, and that we as adults um, have to model that for kids too. That we're as a teacher, I'm constantly learning from my mistakes. I admit to my mistakes. Um, you know, go into class and say. You know, you guys, I said this thing the other day and I can't believe I said it. So I went home and I researched and I learned the real answer to this question or, you know, with my kids where I say, you know what, I'm really sorry. I shouldn't have yelled. I let my emotions get the best of me. And that was unfair of me. I also wasn't seeing your perspective, blah, blah, blah. So modeling that a lot for, for kids is, is important and modeling it for the parents I talk to as a teacher as well. I think it's very difficult because I like at the moment we're ending our school year here and we have like I'm in grade five and an in international school that PYP five it's like the international baccalaureate the IB um, system mm -hmm. if you're aware of that and then they do this mm -hmm. huge exhibition and it's been online but it's just amazing to see how I even catch myself the ego getting involved in like the product <laughs> and a student hasn't like done the research that I know he needs to do and he's kind of yeah. behind so like I lose my cool and I actually apologized I said like listen I said, guys, I'm sorry for yesterday. I also make mistakes, but it just does. And I think as teachers, we get so teachers and parents, we get so wrapped up in our own yeah. identity through these kids. And it's, it bothers me. Oh, it's been bothering me for a while because I just see that kids are not learning true, true learning. It's like, if you put them alone now in a room and get them to do a task, their success level is so low in comparison with what they've been perceived to do. So our kids go from grade five and then they go into the middle school. And then mm -hmm. the middle school will often be looking at it and, and not really understanding why these kids can't do anything independently. But because we've got like learning assistance and we right. help them so much and the end product for me is very, like if we base it on the end product, it's kind of like the end product isn't really the kids. It's kind of like 50% kids and maybe 30% teacher and then 20% parents. And I don't know how we can get right. away from that because I think that that is even though the school system's changed for me, like it definitely has changed since I was at school, which was really regimented, like sit in your desk, do exams and get a grade. I still feel like my teachers and my parents helped me less in those days. And I fell mm -hmm. on my face way more and was, I have to sort myself out there now where we think we're actually helping them more and it's more free and inquiry based, but kids actually, I think mm -hmm. feel even more anxiety for failure. <laughs> Well, it's interesting. So uh, often for parents, what I like to do is bring the evidence in, which is that what we know from research on um, parents who support kids' autonomy to try to struggle and be a little frustrated and work it out on their own versus um, directive or controlling parents who tend to give kids the directions. And this applies to teaching, too. There are very directive teachers and you know, teachers who are a little more willing to let the kids sort of work their way through stuff on their own. So if you are, ironically, these directive, uh, directive parents are often thinking that, well, I'll, you know, it's hard for me to see my kid frustrated. I don't like it. It's upsetting for me. And I'll just make it easier for everyone by telling them step-by-step step how to get, how to do this thing. But the kids of parents who do that, who are so-called directive or controlling parents, have kids that when they're, when the kids are without the parent are far less likely to be able to complete challenging tasks. So this is the research of a woman named Wendy Grolnick. She's, her research is, I cite it quite a bit in the book. So when you have kids that have autonomy supportive parents, they're gonna be a lot more likely to be able to complete challenging tasks when the parents are not around because they have more facility, more comfort with frustration. So 
you know, from a parenting perspective, that means that, you know, when you take away all those directions, the kid tends to fall apart or if things get frustrating, they tend to fall apart. But from a teaching perspective, it means that kids who have been more highly directed by their parents, their coaches, their other teachers are going to be harder for me to teach because one of the other things I talk about in Gift of Failure is something called desirable difficulties that are outlined in a book called Make It Stick that I just love. In that book, um, they talk, the authors talk about the fact that um, when a, a task is slightly more challenging to parse, when it's a little harder to sort of get in our heads, our brain is a lot more likely to encode that information into long-term memory and really give us a more durable impression of that material, a more durable memory of that material, and understand it more deeply in the short term. So I honestly, I say to parents, if you're being really directive of your kid, if you're giving your kid, feeding them the instructions one by one, first do this, next do that, you are setting them up to be less able to learn from one of the most powerful teaching tools I have as a teacher. So it's a little strange that you're doing this thing to make everyone's life easier now that's going to make your child's life a lot harder and a lot and put more obstacles in your kid's way um, eventually. So it's trying to remember and it's hard because i don't i hate seeing my students frustrated i hate seeing my kids frustrated it is so much easier for me to just do it myself or show them how to do it step by step but that's undermining their eventual ability to learn on their own and to tackle difficult tasks on their own i mean i don't think i've got such a problem with that i mean i'd often like do something quite not unplanned but i'd plan like a a, a session and then i would just give the kids you know basic instructions and then i'd watch them mm -hmm. like do terribly <laughs> a lot of them yeah fight and whatever and then i would bring them back to the mat and say okay let's let's break that down let's analyze it let's check what went out and then we'd make like a, a board together saying this but mm -hmm. But it, but it seemed to me that some people couldn't really handle that. It seems that a lot of people can't handle mm -hmm. that lack of control. And almost like us as teachers are quite a controlling bunch of people. Right. And I suppose parents can be as well. And it's, it was kind of like, um, it's kind of like in society where you kind of do things because other people expect you to do them and then end mm -hmm. up not actually doing what you wanted to do. Mm -hmm. But it's, I think it's a major challenge for us. I don't know if you want to just take a step back though and talk about how you came to this point of view because in the introduction to the book you talk about how you were in front of a class and then just suddenly realized oh like what am I doing yeah well I, I think I came to it as a teacher first I think yeah. what I've noticed anyway I get to I, I have this such a fun job usually what I'm out doing especially this time of year is traveling around the country and around the world yeah. and getting to do professional development with teachers and getting to talk to kids and parents and I one of the things I've noticed is that we as teachers tend to have this like split in our brain. There's like the parenting side and then there's the teaching side. And often we're doing things with our students that would be great for our own kids too, but it like never occurs to us or something. So I came there, I got there first as a teacher. Like how do I help my students and specifically the students that you're talking about kids who, when you give them um, a big overarching or vague instructions on something because you're interested in seeing and how they interpret it themselves, they just lose it. One of my former students jokes about this all the time with me. She, I gave her an assignment for a paper in um, high school and she was freaked out because it was so vague. She just needed to be told exactly what to do to get the A or she just couldn't handle it. And so I got on this very, very high horse about the parents of my students. I was like, you people are, you know, screwing this up for me because you're making it so your kids are afraid and scared to take chances and risks. 
And then I realized that my own kid couldn't tie his own shoes. He was nine and he couldn't tie his own shoes. And that was all my fault because that's, um, I taught him how to be helpless. I, you know, I just kept doing it for him and, and learned helplessness is something I was doing on lots of different fronts with my kids and clearly not doing them any favors. So I had to go from being on a very high horse to sort of having a bit of a mea culpa moment. And that's, you know, again, I have the most fun job in the world because I find out something that I just want to learn more about. And then I get to just research the heck out of it and, uh, and then sort of translate the research for, for other people. It's really fun. It sounds like fun. And uh, so you go to schools and you do like professional development for whole staffs. Yeah. So what I often do that's really fun is I'll get to talk to the kids during the day. And one of the things and I talk to them about autonomy and owning their own learning and how, even if they're not getting any autonomy from their parents, how they can sort of own their own learning and make it find places to have choices themselves. And uh, at the end of that, I often give them, I give them all my email address and I say, look, I'm going to be talking to your parents tonight. So email me with the things you want your parents to know. What do you feel like is not being heard? And there's really a top top 10, but really a top five of things they tell me. And then I go um, do professional development in the afternoon. And then I speak to the parents in the evening. And it's a wonderful way to give everyone the same vocabulary to talk about what works best for learning. I do a lot of sort of the science of learning, how we learn as humans. I do a lot of stuff um, on adolescents in particular and how adolescents' brains work and um, the fact that they don't have fully formed frontal lobes yet and what the impact that has on their learning and on their executive function. And I get to bring it all sort of full circle. And so when I talk to the parents in the evening, I get to reveal to them what it is they want their kids to know the most. And it's usually a really interesting moment. There are some uncomfortable chuckles (laughs) chuckles <laughs> that happen when I share those, those points with the parents that are coming from their, their own kids. Yeah, I think it's cool. I think it's important for the parents because I was going to ask you, like, do you do the parents as well? Because it's, it's nice that mm-hmm. we have all this professional development and I've been on professional development, but if the parents don't have a buy-in, it really is kind of useless right. because right. that's what drives a kid a lot of times. You know, the, the message from home, like, this is what you need to do. It doesn't matter if you're a teacher, if that's what's coming from home, it's a total disconnect. So, I mean, I'm sure you agree with me. It's that whole part, the triangular partnership that we need to have with parents and stuff. And I think that um, often when we as teachers want to try something, you have to have the parents involved. Well, and it's really, the research is really clear. The better the homeschool relationship, the better kids learn. And, you know, what's also really fun is I hear from teachers sometimes that I try to set parents up to, um, with actionable items, you know, like how can I walk out of here and give, to give my kids more autonomy, help them feel more competent and improve our relationship, our connection. And I give them very specific, you know, things they can do. And then I'll get these emails from teachers saying, oh my gosh, you said some of them might do this thing and they did it. And, and wow. So, and, and I knew the vocabulary to talk to the parents about that moment, the like focusing on the process more than the product and that kind of stuff. And that's a moment where that's how you keep that conversation going. And that's how you get, you support each other in this effort to sort of make kids more competent and ha- let them have more autonomy 
autonomy and feel more connected both to their parents and their teachers. That's why it's so fun to get to talk to everybody. And I even say to the kids, you know, if your parents come to you and say they're going to give you a little more control over this, that, and the other thing, you've got to step up because if you don't, your parents are going to freak out and they're going to take even more control than they had before. Yeah. And so I can sort of inform all parts of the movement toward more autonomy for kids and more ownership of learning. It's really, it's uh, like I said, it's a delight. That's yeah. no, cool. I mean, I have, I have a similar thing in just wanting to help kids to understand and parents to understand that it's not always about the grades and maths and language and these things. And it's kind of like a pressure we put on kids to perform in areas that might not actually be their thing. And if you look at what we can mm. do today, if you look at what you're doing, what I'm doing, what different people are doing around the world these days and how you can, you know, there's people that haven't been to school. There are people that run companies that there's guys that struggled in school and still we want to put this pressure to like perform in this tiny, like this tiny little box that is, yeah. that is so, what well, it's like so confining. And I see kids just from that factor being let down. I mean, there's even a girl that I teach that just, you know, she's not great at math. She's not great at, at, language but she's such mm -hmm. a good leader and she's such good like she choreographs dances and she does these things but she oh, feels like cool. a failure yeah. and because school has this value um yeah. we can't change it and i think that it's nice it's great to have people like you and and i and i like to push that as well but the system it's the same thing as i think a lot of things in our society it's the it's kind of the system we find in and how to operate within the system that says you need to go to university but mm -hmm. you down there need to teach kids to right. explore and it's like, well, well, and what was really I, this girl, I think of her all the time. She came up to me after a talk outside of New York City and she said um, she was talking to me about what the things she wanted her parents to know. And she said, yeah, because my parents, they just freak out if I don't get A's. And then she said, this is this just put a stake through my heart. Well, only in science and math. She doesn't care. They don't care about like dumb stuff like history and English and stuff like that. And I was like, <laughs> You know, the message for the message we're sending is that, you know, and I'm glad, you know, we have all these discussions about STEM and I'm glad that this girl was feeling like STEM might be something she was interested mm -hmm. in. But the, the message her parents were getting is if your daughter doesn't get A's in science and math and forget about the other stuff, you know, that stuff's less important, that squishy, you know, language stuff, mm -hmm. then, you know, it's just, it drives me bananas. And the stuff that I hear from, you know, I, I'll have a parent ask me, I had a parent one time ask me about how to get her kid to read uh, books that were more challenging. And, and she wanted me to create some kind of like magic reading list for her that was going to be challenging books that her kids were going to be super excited to read. Mm -hmm. And we started with the question of number one, do your kids ever see you read? Because that's the starting place. I mean, if, if you're trying to encourage your kids to read for fun and they never see you read for fun, then clearly it's not really a priority in your house. And she admitted, no, her kids don't see her read very often. She's so busy, blah, blah, blah. And then I said, well, okay, well, let's talk about this list that you want from me. When your kids do read, what do they enjoy reading? And she said, this is gonna kill you. She said, well, when they read, they really like those Diary of a Wimpy Kid books, yeah. um, but those are dumb, so I threw them away. Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, I, I had a nice chat with her after the, after the presentation. I did give her some recommendations, but I said, seriously, if your kids are finding joy in written language, um, then you have some apologizing to do because when you tell kids that the books or the characters that they identify with and find comforting, um, when you tell them those are stupid, essentially what they hear from us is that we think they're stupid. And um, that's, that's one way to really get 
put a wrench in the whole, you know, relationship thing. It, it just, it's really, we think we're doing the right things by pushing them to, you know, to excel and try challenging things. But the truth about literacy is that if you want kids to really be lifelong readers and to continue to learn with their reading, they need to read about a third above their grade level, about a third at their grade level, and about a third below, not grade level, but their reading level, and about a third below their reading level, because that's called comfort reading. And there's a reason that even adults at times like right now, for example, that are really stressful for us, mm -hmm. I've been going back and re-listening and rereading books that I've read a million times before because they comfort me. They make me feel like I have some sort of control over my universe and kids need the same thing. That's what I do for my kids. I read the books that I used to read, but my mom yeah. read to me. So I actually just came down, um, I was reading The Hobbit to my kids. So my mm -hmm. mom read The Hobbit to me and then she read the Narnia to me. So I read that and then Frog and Toad books. I don't need no Frog and Toad. Yep. I read that. To I love Frog and Toad. I, <laughs> I love, love. Yeah. In fact, I, I got to go do, um, I got to go to Washington to speak on behalf of Riff Reading is Fundamental. And um, we were talking about scholastic book fairs and stuff like that. And I have my original books. I have two or three books that I got when I was a really little kid. And Frog and Toad was one of them. I have my, my childhood copy of Frog and Toad. Uh, I have this like um like this thick one, a whole bunch of them. So I read them, but uh -huh. I but I but I agree with you, and it makes me feel good. And I, I think I definitely encourage parents to firstly read by themselves because my I read like all the time. In fact, I have books all over my house. Um, it's it's probably annoying my wife very often. There's always like stacks of books, but then my kids pick up things. And they actually were reading the Diary of the Wimpy Kid, but then they started reading Way of the Warrior Kid, which was kind mm -hmm. of cool. And then they they said why Diary of Wimpy Kid was not really teaching them anything, whereas Way of the Warrior Kid by Jocko Willink, I don't even know Jocko, uh -huh. he wrote those books and how that like got them to, um, you know, my son to really like step up and stuff. So books are really cool for teaching your kids that, but also for teaching the resilience that we're talking about now because yeah. the, the Warrior Kid, he steps out there. But I just think it's- My kid, my, young, my older kid learned how to read because of Captain Underpants. He loved uh, the Captain Underpants books and he wanted to be able to yeah. read them himself. Yeah, I think those, that's the interesting thing. I think we do look at that. And I'll be honest that I've been guilty at times, not of telling kids that, but just of thinking it sometimes like, oh, you know, Captain Underpants, are you ever going to get off Captain Underpants? But they do get off Captain Underpants. Yeah. And I think that, I think these parents that set these huge goals for their kids, it's, it's just this thing of letting go. I mean, I, you've got two boys, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're now 21 and 16. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, they're probably I'm, very different, yeah. right? They're probably very different. As different as could yeah. be, yeah. And yeah, absolutely. And actually during this, during this period where we're all at home together, my older one has been home uh, since March, I guess. And uh, it's been really fun to watch them sort of have this period of time to bond with each other and talk about books and talk about movies and things like that. It's been really fun to have them around together. Mm. Yeah, I think the Corona time has definitely been, I mean, look, it's been negative for a lot of people, but in a way it's been good for us to be at home and, and value family, you know, and, and then also mm. reflect on ourselves like you're talking, but I think we can, we can move on with this whole topic because I think that this fear of, this fear of failure and, the opposite, which is learning resilience, which is actually mm -hmm. learning to get up. We talk about these subjects. So we've been talking about school and subjects, and I agree it's important. But me as a teacher, I've always thought that, no, and maybe this is sacrilegious, and whoever hears a sorry parents who have children that teach, I just believe that building character and teaching a kid mm -hmm. to be able to get up when they fall down. If I look at my life, I'd say probably one of the best characteristics that I ever had was that I just was able to get up no matter what like happened mm -hmm. to me in my life, whether it be a divorce or my son being in hospital, almost dying to the challenges that you have just in everyday life. Um, just being able to get up again and form that 
ability to understand is mm-hmm. not the end and that failure isn't scary. And then that kind of translates into taking risks, you know, and it's like mm-hmm. what I'm doing now with this, it's like, I didn't know Jack about podcasting and, and you know, who knows what happens with this podcast, but that doesn't mean that there has to be an outcome. It doesn't mm-hmm. have to become the dad podcast that was out there and I make like a lot of money. It can just be something that I do and it could be great. But how do we, how do we get parents to understand this less is more fundament, fundamentals outside of the classroom as well, where, you know, stop hovering over your kids. Stop trying to stop them from doing things. The moment they fall off, like my daughter, actually, I'm looking over there. She, they mountain bike and there's about this much drop, like almost a meter drop. And I've been training them to do that. So my son did it. I, I, and then I thought, oh, let me just my daughter go. So she went and she totally ate it like badly. And she didn't yeah. want to come riding up the mountain today. But I said to her, I said, no, you're going to come because this is the most important time that you come up the mountain with me because the moment you stop doing that, that's the moment that you become afraid and you're yeah. not going to do it anymore. So how do we, yeah. how do we get that, that mentality to change in parents where you start understanding that this protectiveness is really stopping our kids from being able to develop that skill. I mean, even climbing a tree, for instance, how does a child learn to climb a tree? They've got to get up there. Yes. It scares the hell out of me sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking up there and some of them might even fall, which has happened to me sadly. But um, I think that's a, that's like a golden thing. Yeah. Here's the thing about the uh, the tree climbing is a great example because it turns out that for risky activities, they actually become more risky for kids as the longer kids don't do them in terms of like climbing a tree. So if you suddenly, most kids will have some um, sense of appropriate age, appropriate dexterity appointment, uh, uh, sorry, appropriate um, sort of fear of heights. I mean, some kids obviously are just going to fling themselves off of things and that's, you know, I've, I've known those kids, but you know, if you let a little, little kid um, try to climb a tree, they really can't go up that high, but they start to establish a sense for, you know, you know, what branch can hold them and what branch can't. But if you don't ever let a kid try to climb a tree and then suddenly they're 14 with their adolescent brain and they're, you know, they've got a couple of kids around them because we know that um, when, when adolescents have other adolescents around, they take more risks, they Mm -hmm. engage in more risky (laughs) behaviors than they would if they were by themselves, um, which is not true of adults, by the way. And so kids, um, if you take that 14-year-old kid who's never climbed a tree and goes to scramble up the tree and has no sense of the weight of the branches and what looks like a dead branch and what's a, a living branch and what, how to do it in a way that's safe, those actual, those tasks become more dangerous for the kid. So there seems to be this like this, we seem to think that if we just put it off long enough, our kid will suddenly have the sense or the balance or the dexterity to just do it right the first time. And that's not how learning works. Um, I get to talk to parents a lot about um, Carol Dweck's work, uh, her, her work with mindset, that not only that when kids understand that their intelligence, their capacity to learn is a malleable thing, that we're not like born with a certain mental horsepower and that's the end of the game, that the more risks we take um, intellectually, emotionally, um, from a physical standpoint, the more connections we make in our brain and the more potential to become more intelligent we become. So with parents, I mean, I think with parents, for me, I have to always come back to the evidence. I, you know, coming back to them and saying like, look, if you do, if you are hyperprotective of your kid, you are impairing their ability to learn. My friend, Julie Lithcott-Hames, who wrote a book called How to, be, How to Raise an Adult. Sorry, her next book is called How to Be an Adult. And it's actually uh, aimed at, 
it's it's <laughs> how to be an adult is going to be uh, it's going to be wonderful. But how to re- in how to raise an adult? She was a um she was a dean at a freshman dean at Stanford, and she would have these kids come into her office. You know, these best and brightest kids, and she would ask them questions about how they were going to solve problems in their lives or what they wanted from their education. And she referred to them as existentially impotent. These kids didn't know what they wanted. They didn't know who they were. And that's what I don't want for kids. And I'll often tell them the story of um, when I was in law school and got my first, and I didn't end up practicing law, but when I was in law school and got my first grade back and it was a D, my first instinct was to quit law school. Like there was no in between for me. There was no like, oh, I should go talk to the professor and find out how to do better next time. It was oh, this isn't for me, I should quit. That's like the ultimate, um, what Carol Dweck calls a fixed mindset, that I can either do it or I can't, and if I can't, I should just quit now. That's what we can avoid if we help kids understand that the process is, this process of learning is ongoing, that we do it all the time as adults, that that's how this works. We use words like yet when they freak out and say things like, I can't do this math problem. You can say, well, you can't do this math problem yet. You just, you just learned this math today. Um, I got to be a part of a really cool, um, show on Amazon Prime, actually there's a poster right here, um, called The Stinky and Dirty Show. Yeah, my kids and this, <laughs> Oh, good. The Stinky and Dirty Show is fantastic because it's, um, it is two vehicles that sort of think like preschoolers and they have to figure out how to do these tasks that in the end really do benefit the whole community. And they go through multiple iterations of failing miserably, but at never at any time do they say, well, we're clearly, we're just not going to be able to do this thing. There's this sort of support and they figure out what works, what to leave behind and what to bring forward with them that might work on their next try. And that's what we need to be teaching kids over and over again, starting as young as possible. And often they actually get it before they go off to like preschool or kindergarten. And it's, it's us. We screw it up for them because all of a sudden we start um, attaching achievement quotient, some sort of like grade or point or score, or you need to be at this particular point at the, this time of the year. And all of a sudden, instead of it just being about learning, we're attaching all kinds of um, baggage to it, whether it's, you know, trophies or points or scores or blue ribbons or whatever. So we're the ones who screw up that for them. So if we can just keep them thinking like a preschooler, which is, you know, or even a toddler, when they get up and they start to walk and then they fall over, we don't say, well, clearly walking is not for you. Let's just give that up now. We say, no, 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 get up. You're fine. Go ahead. Try it again. That's the mentality we need to um, keep moving forward with. And remembering how important play is, Um, you know, a lot of kids just don't get enough unstructured playtime. And it's been really interesting to watch what kids are doing with that time now during this whole COVID thing, because suddenly many kids don't, their entire, you know, very scheduled life has been thrown into, all of a sudden now they're like, I got nothing on my schedule. So there's a little bit more time to give kids free reign to figure out some cool projects for themselves. This should be a real summer, especially um, for helping kids come to some goals about some projects or something they want to learn or something they want to do, and then helping them 
figure out how to get there. And that's called self-directed executive function. And it's really important for kids, which is, okay, you, you want to build a tree house? Well, you can't just walk out in the backyard right now and build a tree house. You got to figure out where the material's coming from. How do you build a tree house? Um, what tree, what are the things you're going to need? All those sort of intermediate steps, um, figuring all that out. That's one of the most important things that you can give kids is the, the freedom to figure out the projects that they want to do and, and figure out all the details for themselves and set those intermediate goals. Yeah. And I saw that you asked a lot of questions then and how important is teaching kids <laughs> questions Yeah. instead of giving them answers the whole time? Yeah. I think we tend to tell we as parents and, and we as teachers, frankly, tend to do a lot of telling. <laughs> and uh, you know, even when it comes to, you know, when parents say, you know, my kid won't do their homework or they're pushing back about whatever, um, asking them how they envision things working um, can be a really powerful tool because usually kids aren't consulted about things like how their homework is going to get done or how they are going to solve some sort of problem. And, um, and often just asking them can be really cool. Even really little kids, a lot of parents talk to me about the fact that getting out of the house in the morning is a nightmare. Um, that, you know, just getting all the kids out of the house with the right things and so I say, well, instead of telling your kids how that's going to work, you can go to your kids and you can say, look, getting out of the house in the morning seems to be really stressful for everyone. I know it's stressful for me. So how can I support you? What, do you, how, what are some ways you think you could get better at getting out of the house in the morning? What's the sticking points? Is it remembering your stuff? Is it you know reading a clock? That kind of thing. And then help your kid figure yeah. out solutions themselves. And I've seen really little kids, like kids who are pre, um, who are pre-literate writing, like making these little charts with pictures of a backpack or picture of their shoes. And, you know, having that little checklist next to the door that they created themselves, because if you can help kids create their own systems, as opposed to imposing systems on kids, you're a lot more likely to get buy-in. Um, and that, that stands for toddlers and that stands for teenagers. Um, getting buy-in, helping kids sort of come to their own solutions, that's where the real learning happens. But how much of this do you think is like the emotional and mental state of parents that are not um, whole as people and are insecure and are worried about what other people think? Because it's like what yeah. I think at the Dad Strong, what we do is like, I'm not that interested in giving loads of parenting tips because at the end of the day, if you're not like a man, like we obviously do focus on fathers. If you're not a, like a mm -hmm. man that is an adult that stands on his own two feet, that leads by example, that can take care of himself mm -hmm. and is physically fit and mentally fit. And you know, then you can't really show up for your, your kid. And, and it's the same thing emotionally because when I've looked at my history of my children, so I've got four now, there's twins that are nine. I got a little four year old and a one year old. And it's, it's taken a while for me to like really reflect on myself to a degree but I started realizing when my emotions are invested in my kids because I am not, I don't, instead of having self-esteem, I've got ego. And this is something that's been playing on my mind lately is ego versus self-esteem. And because my self-esteem was lacking from certain things in my life, I don't parent my children properly because it's not about them. It's about me. And, and this is the major change that I think people need to do. They need to basically just work on themselves first. Because we're all trying to change our children, but meanwhile, we are an emotional mess and right. we don't know how to run our own lives and stuff. <laughs> I see why I see why you uh, why you enjoy listening to uh, to Ryan's podcast to the to uh, and to you know Daily Stoic and stuff like that. This is these are topics that come yeah. up a lot with Ryan Holiday. Um, 
you know what's interesting to me about that is is a lot of parents will come up to me after I've spoken or they'll email me afterwards and say, look, I am fully on board with you. My kid needs more autonomy. I want them to feel more confident, but I can't be the first parent to do it. Because if I'm the first parent that steps back and my kid screws up, then people are going to think that I'm a bad, inattentive, whatever parent. And the teachers are going to think I'm not invested. Um, I just can't be the first one. And so what's nice about my going to a school, often often what the school will do is like use gift of failure as a community read. So the teachers and the uh, parents are all reading it. And the school cool. is really invested in supporting the parents and stepping back. Then they can really have you know, the ability to really reinforce um, attempts by parents to give their kids more autonomy. And and that can be really, really nice. But it's really hard to do if you're the first one. And in um, Wendy Grolnick, again, she talks about this all the time. She has a a great book called um, Pressured Parents, Anxious Kids, where she talks about this contagious stress. And I wrote about it. If There's an article at The Atlantic called Why Back to School Night Made Me Feel Like a Bad Parent. Because I got to back to school night, left my kids at home. One was playing Minecraft. One was practicing guitar, I think. And I was feeling pretty good about my parenting. And I got to the school and all the parents were talking about, you know, the traveling soccer leagues and the cello lessons and the extra after school math tutoring. And I started to like hyperventilate and I had to step away. And it's because this pressured parents phenomenon, which that's what Wendy calls it, is highly contagious and we can be each other's worst enemy. But on the flip side, we can be each other's best support. If you, I have two, uh, my two best friends are women who um, very much believe in giving kids their more autonomy, helping their kids feel competent. And so we reinforce each other's choices about not jumping to the rescue when the kid messes up X, Y, or Z. And and so I think if we can just learn to lean on each other a little more for the right reasons and not let all that talk about, you know, the SAT scores and, you know, all the trophies and stuff like that get on us, then we could um, do a lot better for our kids. Because our kids know when, you know, the, remember I said that I, I ask kids to email me with the thing they want yeah. their parents to know. And the number one, the number one sentiment that I get back from kids is essentially comes down to these three statements. I'm not my brother. I'm not my sister. And I'm not you when you were my age. Mm-hmm. I am me. And these kids don't feel seen or heard or loved for themselves. They feel like they're some sort of mini me, you know, vicarious way for their parents to feel pride about stuff that they didn't get to do. And so for those reasons, I I talk to them a lot about things like the one thing uh, when my son started applying to colleges, the one thing we told him that we would not do was put a college sticker on the back of our car because the place that he chooses to go Mm. to college is not my boasting point. I don't like get to use that as my ego booster when I pull into the parking lot at school (laughs) and people can say, Ooh, look at that. You know, and that's, that's because I value education and I value the choice that he makes about the place that's right for him. Mm. And there's no, and I can't do that if I'm co-opting his, his accomplishments as my own. He is not, I'm proud of my children and I love them so much, but their accomplishments are not mine. 
you know, if my kid gets into the college of his dreams or my kid gets, you know, some amazing scholarship, you know, I, that's fantastic. And I love him and I'm going to be so mm -hmm. proud of him, but I can't, that's not because I was a great parent. That's because I have a kid who has learned how to go out and seek things out and figure out how to self-advocate and all those other things. That's what I'm really proud of is their ability to figure out how to go out and achieve those things themselves. But it's interesting how parents like pick and choose because what I see in middle school happening a lot is that parents will still be about the, the grades and stuff, but they won't really care that the kids are sitting on a cell phone for like the whole day or, <laughs> or sitting on, on, on Facebook and this kind of thing. And I'm, I'm like quite surprised at that because I don't know what to do with my kids as they get older now mm -hmm. because I, I personally don't want my kids to have cell phones. But then again, it's that pressure of like, mm -hmm. well, everybody's got it and my kids. And this is the other thing is that parents don't want to have conflict with their children. Whereas I feel mm -hmm. I'm not really afraid of it. And well, let's, let's, let's hold the judgment for now. But <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like something that you have to learn to have conflict. With. I feel, I don't mm -hmm. know if you agree with this. You need to learn to have conflict with your children because I think that understanding they don't have to like you and they mm -hmm. don't like your decisions. And sometimes it's better for them. It's a very tough thing for parents. And that's another thing is that we, we go too easy on our kids, not just in what we expect from them, but I feel we also go too easy on them in actually having expectations of them, setting mm -hmm. boundaries with them and actually saying no to our children still. Because what mm -hmm. I'm picking up is a lot of parents listen to their children. So the children will go home from school and tell their parents everything at school and they'll come to the school and get on teacher's case. In my day, honestly, my parents, if I got in trouble at school, I got in trouble at home again. Yeah. Like, so I, have, I always say one of the things that I hear a lot from teachers that we like to say is that we promise as teachers not to believe everything your kid yeah. says goes on in your house. If you promise not to believe every single thing that your kid says goes on in our classroom, because you know, there's the truth lies somewhere in between. Yeah. No, but it's just trying to get people to understand that, you know, it's not about, I think it's about making in life intentionally hard for our kids. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I don't know if you agree with that, but it's like putting things in, in, in place so that our children know that there's a, there's a barrier. Like for my, my daughter, they love to go down. Like my kids are pretty decent downhill mountain bikers already. Mm -hmm. My daughter didn't want to ride uphill today. She's like, oh, they want to go uphill. And I said, Sophia, this is life. I'm sorry. Like if you want the downhill you got to hit the uphill. And then at the end of the yeah. time, I said to her, well, you're going to come down the hill and you're going to be, oh, this is so amazing. And mm -hmm. she was, but I said, this is life. And I think we're trying to take these hills. Like we're trying to flatten out. I mean, you say it in your book as well. It's like bulldoze all the, the obstacles out the way. And um, I, don't, I actually don't know why we do it for our children because I think society, and maybe we could just comment on this a little bit. We don't want to go into politics and society in America right now too deeply. But so watching it from the outside, I see a lot of people with poor character and weak character mm -hmm. and just upset yeah. by anything that anybody says. And it's almost like there's this, like, this tripwire that is like so thin because mm. we, we're looking at a generation who have been raised like that for a while. And I'm not saying there's nothing to be upset about. And I don't say that there's times to really stand up for justice, like completely agree with that. But at the same time, it's so emotional and so like immediate that people are offended by everything. I don't know if you agree with that, but I think we're seeing the result of a generation that has not learned to actually go through hardship. Yeah, what's interesting for me, the way I talk to parents about that is that I think a lot of parents would like to preserve this image to their children that they are perfect and that they don't do anything wrong. And yet the things that go wrong in our lives that are hard 
are some of the most amazing teaching yes. points for our own kids. So it's really important that if I screw something up or I don't achieve something that's important to me, or I get, you know, I, I had a, about a year ago, I had something happen um, where I got a lot of backlash online and it was, I learned a ton from it. And breaking down with my kids what exactly went wrong and what I would do differently next time was incredibly valuable to them. But hiding from them the reality of um, what happened to me is never, ever going to help them. And so, you know, if you have this job and I, you know, my favorite way to exert, to talk about this is say something like, you know, man, today at work, you know, I hit reply all on an email instead of reply and I am in big <laughs> oh, trouble now. What would you do to fix this? Or I didn't get this promotion that I really wanted, but I'm still going to continue to go for it. How do you guys think? What, what would you do if this was your problem and you were trying to solve it? Bringing kids into our problem solving and modeling um, how important that is. Also in Gift of Failure, I talk a lot about the fact that there's a, the, the uh, chapter on grades, it's a bit of a um, bait and switch because it's really about goals. And one of the things that I like, I'm a big goal setter and I used to do it a lot with my students, um, you know, with my advisees, you know, we'd have to create a long-term goal and some short-term achievable goals. And I never thought to do that with my kids. And then we started doing it like once a season, we sort of would start to sit down and say, okay, summer just started. So um, not, a, you know, there are no camps this summer. There's no classes. My son was supposed to be taking driver's ed this summer. That's not happening. So what goals do you have for the coming season? Because no one's going to be allowed to just sit around and, you know, do nothing this whole summer. So then we all would set three, we all try to set three goals and one of them has to be a little scary. One has to be something that really makes you go, ooh, that sort of puts me outside of my comfort zone. And then the nice thing is when we talk about how those things go, um, we can have all kinds of conversations about what we screwed up, how to do better. And the fun thing is about personal goals. If they're personal goals, who the heck cares? If you just you, you're the only one who cares if it doesn't, if you don't achieve it, right? So it's it's a really safe way to fail. And for really little kids, when they come up with their goals, don't be surprised if they're things like, you know, when my kid, when my younger kid was little, it was like, um, you know, keep my room clean for seven days in a row or make a few new friends because he, one of my kids realized they'd sort of really walled themselves off with one group of friends. And those are the things that are important to them and valuing if as, as soon as I value that that's something that's worthwhile of our attention and, and of, of an aspiration, that's when we help them understand that they're worthy of, you know, doing better and trying hard and that we're going to support them through that. So setting goals, helping again, back to that process of a product thing. Um, I totally agree with you. I think it's really when things have been bulldozed out of the way for our kids, then they have a lot less comfort with it when it goes wrong the first time and are a lot more likely to give up. And so it's our job as parents to step out of the way, as my friend Julie Lithcott-Hames likes to say, it's our job to raise kids who don't need us. Mm. And as painful and scary as that is, it really is a great goal that eventually I don't want to have to do any of this stuff for my kids. And boy, what a disservice it would be to them if I did. Yeah. The guy that kind of inspired me to start this podcast was saying that our goal as dads is just to become obsolete almost. It's like you get yeah, to, you, yeah. you work yourself out of the job and it shouldn't be to work mm -hmm. yourself into the job that your parents, I mean, yeah. that's what we have now. We have a lot of men 
the statistics are much higher. I think, did you, was it your book? I can't remember. I think you mentioned it that a lot of, yeah, it was. That a lot of people um, are staying at home like much longer now, mm-hmm. you know, like between mm-hmm. the age of 18 and 31, that there's a much yeah. higher rate of people. Whereas I was out of the house at 22 and I was speaking to another guy who has nine kids. You just mm-hmm. keep leaving at 18, 19. And then we see these yeah. guys sitting in mom's basement because parents have, and is that because parents have basically made them dependent on them? That they aren't there are a bunch of reasons. Buy. I mean, really, there are a bunch of reasons. Right now, I was talking to, I was mentoring a student the other day who just graduated from college, and the chances of her getting a job right now, right out of college, are just really low mm-hmm. um, in her chosen field. And and so there, it partially is economic, uh, the, the economics of what we're dealing with, especially right now, partially because um, adolescence has been extended at both ends. It's gotten, it's puberty starts earlier now and yes. adolescence is extended. You know, now that we understand based on a long time ago, actually, this is, um, the medical profession and psychologists and people like that used to think that Kids, age, kids' brains were done like fully baked when they were 10 because that's the age at which a kid's head reaches yeah. its or brain reaches its adult size. Yeah. Now, I don't know about you, but I've been around a lot of 10-year-olds and they are not fully cooked at 10. So, yeah. well, but we couldn't know what was happening in the brain before we had um, the ability to use like functional fMRIs, functional MRIs to look at the brain development. Now we know that the brain is not done developing until 24, 25. And so there are certain things that, you know, are going to be a little more difficult for kids because their brain isn't, their frontal lobe is not fully developed. And that's sort of the, the, you know, the executive part of the brain that handles all the organization and all that stuff. And, you know, along with this knowledge of that comes both a warning and a really great bit of information, which is, you know, I can have some sympathy for the fact that it's hard for my kid to organize this book report because his brain just isn't there yet. But on the other hand, that doesn't give him the freedom to say, oh, well, I just can't do this because my brain's not there yet. So that's why in, in, in Gift of Failure in the chapter about middle school, which is really a chapter on executive function, mm-hmm. it's like, okay, let's break down all these different executive function skills into their component parts and talk about how to support kids, how to be like training wheels. You know how training wheels have those, you can raise them and raise them and raise them so the bike can teeter and totter a little bit more so that they need the training wheels less and less. That's what we are, mm-hmm. where they're training wheels and they they should be needing us less and less and less, which means we need to be, you know, pulling back, pulling back, pulling back. And that can't just happen at 18 when they walk out the door. Um, And um, there's a wonderful book called Homesick and Happy by Michael Thompson. He writes about boys. He wrote Raising Cain and Best Friends. It's, he's wonderful. In Homesick and Happy, in the introduction, he talks about um, when he goes to speak to parents about kids, he often will ask the parents to recall in their, to sort of close their eyes and recall back to their adolescence or their childhood when they really accomplished something they were super proud of. And then he asks the parents, the people, the adults in the audience to raise their hand if their parents were present when that really big accomplishment happens. And very often, no, the parents were not there. I know for me, that's the case. Um, My son, my older son, who's now 21, when he was 18, really screwed something up pretty badly in a way that was almost irretrievable. And he was going to lose a summer job that he was had lined up. And he didn't tell me about it. 
until two weeks later when he had fixed it on his own because he very specifically, he knew I would want to help him. He knew I would try to help him fix it. And he really, really wanted to fix it on his own. And he was so proud of himself when he was able to report two weeks later how he had gone about fixing this thing um, that was, you know, a really big deal to him. And that moment of pride, like that right there, when he revealed to me how without my help, he fixed this really serious problem in his life, that moment of pride right there, that's what I'm parenting for. I'm not parenting for the moment where I'm like, oh, sweetie, I can fix that for you. Let me make a few phone calls. That's not what I'm parenting for. What I'm parenting for is that moment when they say, oh, I did it myself. Check out what I did. Look at, look at this. Or I didn't fix my, I didn't forget my homework this week because I learned uh, a strategy that's working for me. Those are the things that we should be parenting for. I think that's the thing with teachers as well. It's just this, and parents, mm-hmm. it's, it's this kind of kudos. Like for me, when I get on Facebook, like when students write me back and say, Uh, Mr. King, oh, thank you so much for what you did for me and blah, blah, blah. Or they post, these teachers were the best and you get that kick and you realize, and you think to myself, like, I often have to think to myself, like, why is it so important for me to be the one? You know what I mean? It's kind of like we have this thing that it's important to be the one that's done it or for our Mm -hmm. kids to be the parent. Mm -hmm. I'm divorced. So even that sometimes comes into play to be Mm -hmm. like this competition, like subconscious competition of yourself and other people. And I, I think it's important for us to learn a skill or kind of a mindset or thought pattern that can get us in that moment so how what thought patterns in the moment because it's obviously a moment like I can watch my Mm -hmm. kid and he's about to do something that I know I could help him do better Mm -hmm. but I have to step back and that sounds simple right there must be certain skills or certain things you can do that you can start I just have I just have a mantra like I'm I'm serious you know like I said my kids are 21 and 16 they're at home right now my mantra is with almost everything I do is Okay, stop. Do I want to have the kind of kid? Do I want, I have two competing things here. Do I want this done the way I want it done quickly and right now? Or do I want to have the kind of kid who can do this for himself next time? Yeah. And that constant view of sort of the more long term view of parenting, of, you know, like, because it is just easier if we do it, right? It's easier. We have the experience. We know how to do it. We can probably do it faster. In it. And look where it got me with the shoe tying. The shoe tying was frustrating as all get out. And he was so frustrated that we went for, you know, shoes without laces. And we ended up with Velcro. We ended up in this situation where suddenly now I have a nine-year-old kid who can't tie his shoes. Totally my fault because I... I made him helpless. Uh, Learned helplessness, interestingly enough, learned helplessness is um, something that is sort of our default mode when we, uh, our default response, when we as uh, human beings experience long-term discomfort, pain, frustration. Um, This is all based on the research of Martin Seligman. And Dr. Seligman found that that is our default response. And the way we diffuse that, the way we interrupt that default response to, of, you know, curling up in a ball and just wanting to go helpless is to give the kid or the human more control, not less. There's Mm -hmm. all kinds of animal studies on this. There's all kinds of human studies on this. The animal studies are just so interesting to read that when we deprive, for example, rats of control as a, as a baby, they uh, like, for example, there's this one experiment where a rat is being shocked repeatedly 
there are two rats and one of the rats has the ability to turn off that shock and it turns it off for both rats not just the one that has the control so both rats are getting the equal amount of shock but then you raise those rats up to be adolescents and you put them on a pad that shocks them from underneath but they could jump off if they want the rat that had the control as a baby will just go ahead and jump off and avoid the pain but the rat that has learned to be helpless learned that it has no control has no sense of what's called self-efficacy, which is a human thing, not a rat thing. I don't know. Maybe rats feel self-efficacy. I have no idea. Um, that rat will just sit there and take it. It'll just continue to get shocked. And that's what we do to kids is we teach them over and over again that the that they have no ability to act. And even if they do act, for example, the kids in my rehab class, classroom often were in a situation where they felt like you know they had no way to escape someone who was abusing them they had no control over their universe their parents are you know substance abusers they can't change their lives and so they start to feel like they get this learned helplessness and lack of self-efficacy thing and that perpetuates and perpetuates and perpetuates and renders these kids feeling like no matter what they do, they why even bother to try? Because nothing's ever going to change. And that's what we do to kids when we're constantly doing for them, is teaching them that they we don't have the faith in them that they could be more competent. Every time I tied my shoes, kid my kid's shoe for him, I was sort of telling him, you know, sweetie, I don't really think you can handle this. Let me just do that for you. So get your brain back in the other direction. Do I want a kid who, where it's done quickly, done the right way, or do I want a kid who can do this themselves next time um, without my help, ideally? Would you also agree that it's about asking like, who is this for? Is this for me or for my child? There's a lot of parents <laughs> yeah. are doing stuff. Are they doing it for themselves or are they actually doing yeah. it for the kid? <laughs> I mean, some of the horror stories, um, some of the horror stories I hear are especially from educators about the, um, about what's happening with their students. Um, you know, I had, you know, that if the kid doesn't get into an Ivy League school that, you know, it's, they're just a, uh, a shame on the family and, you know, that kind of thing. And it's, you know, I met this really wonderful girl at a high school and she, the way everyone introduced me to her was by telling me that she was such a great actress. Like she would get up on stage and the whole energy in the room would shift. Like she lit the room up. And everyone told me this. And then I met her and I said, so are you going to continue with this after graduation? She's like, oh no, I have to go to business school. And, you know, maybe she also liked business. I don't know. But I do know that the thing that everyone told me made her light up inside was this thing that she felt was not an acceptable pursuit in any fashion. So we had a lovely uh, you know, conversation about inter, you know, doing things sort of on the side and ways to fit this thing into her life. Because when she started talking about it, her face just lit up and she was so animated and so excited. And, you know, those are the things that we end up being most successful in, in the end. I mean, in fact, when I, I didn't sell my first book, it just did not sell and it shouldn't have. It was a terrible book. <laughs> and I was talking to my husband and Look I said, you say that now you're just like, it's a terrible book. And you know, it's like, Oh, is it? Uh, Cause every, everyone's first book tends to, most people's first book tends to be terrible. <laughs> Everyone, most, all the writers I know have a terrible book in a drawer. <laughs> um, but I did sell chapters of it as essays. So I okay. made a little bit of money off of it. But when I went to my husband and I said, you know, I'm really bummed out that book didn't sell. And now I don't know what to write about. And he said, well, I think you should write about teaching because that's what makes you light up. Mm. And I said, I remember specifically, I said, well, 
no one will want to read. Who wants to read about teaching? No one wants to read that. And I was very, very happy to um, be proven um, wrong about that because that's how I got my start was blogging about what I was doing in my own classroom. And he was totally right. My voice for writing about teaching was just way more animated than writing about what someone else would have wanted me to write about. I know we're bumping up against time here, probably over time here. Okay. Unfortunately, it's kind of weird. I plan these podcasts and I'm like, how am I going to fill the hour of the? <laughs> and then I get to the end of it, I'm like, oh no, how am I going to stop? <laughs> Which is cool because it came with time, you know, and, and as time yep. goes, I can actually come here. I almost didn't take notes for this one because I thought, let me just go and do this because I'm sure this topic can go on forever. But I have, uh, a, I have a podcast too, and I've always got all these careful yes, notes. Yes. And we also, we also try to stick to a half an hour. And yeah. then my, ho- my co-host and I will text each other. We're like, we're at 43 yeah. minutes, but it's going. But that's the nice thing about podcasts is that, you know, it's, a, it's roughly, you know, about X yeah. amount. You know, there are no rules. Podcasting yeah. doesn't have rules. It's great. Yeah, I know your one's about writing. I mean, I, I hope my first book isn't crap because it's been going for seven years. I like just can't, I can't finish this damn thing. It's been edited and it's like different parts of the fantasy based on my kids. That's another story. Uh-huh. But I'm hoping they yeah. come to something. But, um, but it's the same thing for me. And I, I agree with you. That's the great danger, right? That we get our kids into a life that they're not happy. Like you studied law. I know a lot of lawyers mm-hmm. that would rather be doing something else. But because of the money and the status and because of the expectation, it's kind of like they're stuck in that life. And I look at myself and I go, I wanted to be a teacher when I was in grade three. And then I mm-hmm. wanted to be a lawyer and accountant because, but actually this is a little story because I actually failed, not failed at school because I was, mm-hmm. I used to be the top academic in primary school. So when mm-hmm. you see your moment that you really achieved, my, my greatest moment was I first in class in grade five. It was a great moment <laughs> among them. But then I kind of achieved early and then I kind of didn't want to, I didn't care anymore. Like I became a teenager and I just didn't give a shit about school. Mm-hmm. So I was, I did okay. And then I did really badly towards the end. And then I pulled myself together. But my grades that I was predicted to get by teachers were nowhere near it. So I didn't, mm-hmm. couldn't be a doctor. I couldn't be, I mean, I could have been, but I couldn't get bursaries because my parents couldn't mm-hmm. afford it. So mm-hmm. I ended up just drifting around for like six years, waitering, managing restaurants, barmen, doing a whole bunch of different things. And I only started working um, as a teacher when I was 26. And that little thing when I was in grade three came back and my dad found something in the newspaper and said, Hey Tom, you can become a, a student teacher. And I was yeah. like, okay, cool. And I kind of um, ended up following my dream uh, as a nine-year-old because I actually didn't succeed, which yeah. is, it's kind of weird as a teacher it's, to tell my students sometimes, but that's the thing that we are in danger, yeah. right? We end up going on weird paths and how many people are on that path that makes them feel alive. And I think as parents, isn't it so important for us to be alive as well? And our kids will be parents as well and to let them be on that path that is, yep. that is meant for them. And that takes failure. I think, I think it definitely takes. Yeah. Failure. And there's a book you would really like by David Epstein called range. He was, got he it. also so wrote this right now. Oh, good. Oh, good. <laughs> so, I mean, my, my career trajectory has been all over the place. And I, I went to law school, not, you know, because I was looking to make buckets of money. I went because I wanted to work in juvenile law. And um, it wasn't until I was in law school and I was asked to teach a class over the summer after my second year of law school that I, I fell so in love with teaching. I knew there was no going back. So I finished law school, but never took the bar, never practiced. I had worked as an intern in juvenile law. So teaching for me, but I only came to that after sort of doing lots of different things. And those lots of different things have all contributed in one way or another to what I'm doing now Mm. and all in really interesting ways. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't take back any of it. And I'm so glad I had a very winding path to where I am now. Well, I figured it out at 28. 
Yeah. I mean, it's cool. Um, like yeah. it's good that you have that story as well. I think when you're writing a book like that, it would be pretty sad if you weren't doing what you love as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, and actually the biggest gift to failure story that I have told, I tell quite a bit is, and the short version is that the first, the so gift to failure was based, um, it was sort of started because of a, an article that went viral at the Atlantic. There was a big auction for the book. We had like, I don't know, 13 or 14 publishers looking wow, cool. to, to get the book. It was a big deal. And then I wrote the book and it was a mess. It was horrible. And the first version of the book, my editor really came back to me and she said, we can't publish this book like this. And they wanted to get a ghostwriter to help me with it from the, an organizational perspective. And it was such a blow to my ego, this whole like, I can't, I can't have a ghostwriter because I'm, I'm a writer. And so I asked, I basically turned to my editor and I asked for the, just all of the feedback, no matter how ugly it was and give me the opportunity to have two probationary chapters. Let me try to fix two chapters. And if I can do that, then can I have more? And that's how it ended up working. So from a disaster of a book, the only way forward through that was to suck it up. And I had this incredible, I, and for me, then the big reward for me was not, you know, oh, it's New York Times bestseller, blah, blah, blah. The huge reward for me was that I finished my second book. And when the edits came back on my second book, after I had written down every mistake I made on Gift of mm. Failure and all these lists of things not to do and double checked and rechecked that I had not done the mistakes that I made with Gift of Failure, the second book came back with really superficial edits. And my editor was thrilled and she's like oh my gosh you paid attention you did all these things you you know you didn't make any of the same mistakes again and that's how that's why hopefully she'll let me keep writing books mm. because if i had rolled over and said yeah 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 let's bring in a ghostwriter to fix this thing it wouldn't have been my win number 1 and i would not learn have learned as much and the only way to learn from that experience is to sit there and look the mistakes you've made in the face and um and learn from them it's been yeah. a big lesson for me. I think it's a cool place to end because I think that that's one of the messages that we need to teach uh, parents and children is that mm -hmm. being honest with our kids, you know, this praise and, 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 you know, like heaping praise on kids and not actually giving them real feedback then leads to adults who can't take any criticism right. or feedback and then right. react to everything in life. And every time someone says anything negative, they instead of, because the moments I've changed in my life, and I'll be honest with you, I grew up someone that really wanted to succeed all the time and I couldn't handle failure very often. And yeah. therefore I couldn't look myself in the mirror and go, Tom, these are where you actually are falling down and where you are wasting time in life and where you're not showing up as a dad, a parent, as a colleague. Right. And I had to go to myself and in the last year or two, I've been really re real with myself as a person and realizing how strong, how much of a strength it is to be able to look at what is negative because then it's exciting and you go, I start to get excited by how much I suck now. I'm like, oh, and don't know that. And I'm so bad at this because there's so much room for me to go. When mm -hmm. I think that I'm trying to protect myself from seeing how much I lack, I can't actually see how exciting it is and how much is in the future. So I think it's a great lesson. I think the book's, the book's great. And as, I mean, it must be, I mean, it's here on the other side of the, the Atlantic Ocean here in Germany and, and hopefully it spreads more. And I'm definitely going to be recommending it to parents and teachers and delving into it a little bit more deeper. Thank you. And who knows when this COVID thing is, is over if you want to come to germany maybe i can hook up you with our school excellent well some of the international schools get together here sometimes to bring mm -hmm. people over so hopefully mm -hmm. we can hook up because i think this message is it's huge and it's bigger than the other stuff we teach our, our kids is just to teach them even the two podcasts ago a totally unrelated guy said greatest lesson in life is to just 
get up and go again and learn from your mistakes. So mm-hmm. I appreciate you coming on. I don't know if you, you want to tell just people where they can get hold of you and, and a little bit more detail. Everything you could ever want in terms of links to everything is at jessicalehe.com. In fact, if you go to jessicalehe.com and you sign up for my email lo- newsletter, you'll get, um, which I don't send out very often, you'll get <laughs> an email back right away that has, um, like everything. It's got gift to failure, frequently asked questions, videos at YouTube. It has all, it has a bibliography of all my favorite reads about parenting and learning. It has a list of like my favorite YouTube educators. If your kids are getting bored and you want to find some new interesting Mm. things for them to learn, there's some YouTube educators that I love out there like Emily Grassley and Smarter Every Day and Vsauce. Um, So there's all kinds of fun resources. If you sign up, you'll get that email in your box. Awesome, man. I really appreciate you coming on. It's quite um, nice serendipitous that I just saw you on the Daily Dad. I was like, let me just try. This sounds like an awesome thing. And I looked at the book and I was like, wouldn't it be cool if she came on and you got back to me? So I think coronavirus has has served up a couple of good things and made it more possible. So I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So that wraps up my conversation with Jessica. Really hope you guys were challenged by that. I hope you guys learned something. I hope you guys feel inspired to be better fathers as far as our education of our children go and to start letting go a little bit more and that doesn't just mean letting go to let our kids get bumped and scraped and bruised and to explore the world themselves but it means also letting go of our expectations of our kids and being there just to support them and help them when they need it but to let go and obviously let them on their own sometimes and just also yeah just give them a gift of failure guys let them let them experience failure and let them experience the the aftermath of being able to get up and go again and experience uh, the growth and enjoy the process of learning and not always get so focused on the grades and the product so thanks once again for joining us please share this podcast with as many men as you can and leave us a rating or a review wherever you listen to this podcast check us out on instagram on facebook in our dad strong group really stoked about that check out our website as well Um, Yeah, and just remember to keep working on building that strong body, that strong mind, and that strong character so that we can love more actively, lead more effectively, and leave that legacy uh, behind. And so, until next time, guys, be that strong.